Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, I am so excited to be meeting with Bergen Cooper. She is the Director of Policy Research at the Center for Health and Gender Equity She does incredible sexual and reproductive health and rights work all over the world. I can't even keep track of all the countries. We were actually uh, wonderfully lucky to meet in Geneva a few years ago at a World Health Organization meeting. Bergen, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us on this podcast today. Carmen, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be on your podcast today. So nice to hear your voice through this time. Right? This is a, a very challenging um, time. Indeed. So we're we're going to start with your elevator pitch. Ah. So if I am, say, in an elevator with you, and we're going up four floors, sometimes I like to say flights, but I think the elevator is floors, <laughs> and, and I was to say, so Bergen, can you describe your work, what you do? What would you say? Well, I'm the director of policy research at Change, as as you mentioned, and our job is to improve U.S. foreign assistance. So the U.S. government sends money all over the world, uh, and it and it supports sexual and reproductive health and rights for women and girls. Our job is to make sure that that money is evidence based, is situated with internationally recognized human rights norms, is gender transformative, uh, and is doing the best that it can for women and girls' sexual and reproductive rights globally. That's amazing. Could you maybe explain what gender transformative is for the listeners? So gender transformative, we look at policies that come out of the U.S. government, and we ask if they are where they land within a scale of being gender blind, meaning here's a policy or program that is implemented to improve people's health, but it doesn't take into account that people have different types of genders and that might impact how they interact with a structural environment uh, to a range of gender transformative, which means here's a program or policy that is working to improve a person's health and it understands that a person's gender plays into how they interact with the health system. Uh, one of the one of the ways that we that we grade or think about the U.S. government's work is through uh, our SRHR index, and it's mm. uh, it's an index in which we grade U.S. global health assistance policies uh, every calendar year. You can find it online at srhrindex.srhrforall.org. Great. Uh, and, and also put a link to the this this podcast with your um, website and then also any any resources you want the listeners to have. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. And, and, and this website's a great tool because 
you know, global health assistance, foreign assistance, how the U.S. government works in sexual and reproductive health and rights. It's it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this <laughs> this yeah, website is huge. a tool to yeah, it's a tool to understand who are the government actors who do this work? What work do they do and how well are they doing it? Um, so I, I hope the tool is useful uh, for, for your listeners. Thank you. Uh, my second curious question is if I was to show up where you are right now on the beach in New Jersey <laughs> with a time machine with space for two people and there was no COVID-19 travel restrictions, and I was to say, Bergen, take me back to the time and place where you started thinking about uh, stigma around abortions and women's sexual health and women's pregnancy, and you wanted to do something about it. Where would we go? We would go to Washington, D.C. The year would be 1993. Uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Born and raised. I thought you were from New York. (laughs) No, just been in New York for almost 20 years now. Wow. Uh, But yeah, I grew up in in Washington, D.C. And in 1993, I was deeply obsessed with salt and Peppa's Very Necessary album. And and this is what you put at your talks you have. Yes. Yes. So when Carmen and I met uh, at the WHO in Geneva, I actually... (laughs) had a slide up with salt and pepper on it during uh, a presentation on a systematic review methodology. Uh, <laughs> that was amazing. It said, let's talk about sex, right? Yep. Yep. yep indeed. Yep. And on that, on that album, they dedicated the last track to an advocacy organization that was raising awareness about HIV and AIDS. Really? I believe the tr- yeah. I believe the track is called I've Got AIDS. And if you listen to it now, it's wildly dated, of course. But at the time, it, it, it felt very groundbreaking to me. And I, I was young, I was probably 10 at the time. And I was listening to it. And uh, a, I think they're teenagers and this, this teenager comes to her boyfriend or, or they're, you know, young adolescents. And, and she says, I've, I've got HIV. And he says, oh, you know, go away. You've been sleeping with somebody else. And she said, no, I haven't. And he slams the door. And then you hear his inner monologue. And he says, oh, I know she wasn't sleeping with anyone. Damn, I've got AIDS. And wow. I, I heard this as a 10-year-old. And I went to my parents and I said, we got to do something about HIV and AIDS. And they said, wow. we got to do something about what you're listening to. <laughs> You're like, uh, listening to the right stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then so from there, it, it, it was a quick spiral of interest in all things sexual and reproductive health and rights. That's an amazing story. Like, salt and pepper, right? We should oh reach my out to them and say, you need to do some more. Listen, uh, I think about it all that? the time. I saw them in concert a couple of years ago, and I just kick myself for not, you know, throwing a letter on stage. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. You are really inspiring me to dig up that album. Oh, um, it's great. The album holds up. Please. Yeah, I, I, it was in high school when it came out. So now I'm like, oh, I really need to, to find that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, Bergen, what would you say to this question? Why does stigma around pregnancy or around abortion, why does it really matter? What's the big deal? There's all these things going on in the world today. 
who cares? <laughs> I care. <laughs> well, <laughs> why should I care? <laughs> Listen, stigma matters because it's universal. Mm -hmm. And it's also entirely unique to the individual. It's this really interesting uh, impact in which everyone will experience stigma at some point in their life. And it can look different mm. throughout the life course. Mm -hmm. And for some levels of stigma, it can, it can compound throughout the life course. Um, some folks might experience stigma of, of being a youth, of not having their mm -hmm. voice trusted as, as an authority. And then older populations might have that same stigma, but from the different end of the age spectrum, having mm -hmm. their voice dismissed as, as not important. Um, stigma around pregnancy, around abortion, you, you know, it certainly impacts lots of people. I, I am pregnant now. Um, Congratulations. I, Thank you. I'm Thank so excited. You. <laughs> Thank you. Very excited myself. Um, we, my husband and I tried to get pregnant for a long time. Um, a couple of years, we have two teenage boys at home and we just felt like we needed another. Um, <laughs> and, and there's a lot of stigma around both fertility and infertility mm, who has both. the right. Absolutely. Who has the right to be a parent? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you are infertile right now during the pandemic, we see that, uh, at least in the United States, many, uh, infertility treatments have been halted mm. because of, uh, COVID-19. Now, some of those restrictions are starting to lift now towards the end of April, but that is, that is not all, that is not the case for everyone all over the world. So there are women who are unable to have a pregnancy without medical intervention, who are being told that that is not medically necessary at this time. Mm. Now, these women, for some women, a couple months does make a difference. Mm -hmm. If they are able to get pregnant now versus if they are able to get pregnant six months from now, six months might be significantly harder for for some women. So there's this there is a stigma around trying to get pregnant. Now, if somebody wants an abortion during this time, mm. there are many states in the United States and who have blocked access to abortion, saying it is not an essential health oh. service. So there is a stigma about trying to start a pregnancy and trying to end a pregnancy. I, I had a miscarriage uh, last fall. and. I'm sorry. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you know, miscarriages are so common, um, but they are also so very painful. And there is a wild amount of stigma around miscarriage. Really? Um, oh, yeah. You know, miscarriage, of course, can happen at any point during a pregnancy, but it's most common in the first trimester. And the first trimester is also the time where many people aren't, are, are not telling others about their pregnancy, mm -hmm. whether whether you're worried about a miscarriage or worried about your job security or worried about a whole host of reasons, it might be that time where you are, are living in secrecy around your pregnancy. And for me, that was certainly the case. I, I had friends and family who knew I was pregnant, but I also wasn't telling most coworkers or colleagues. And so there I was experiencing a miscarriage mm -hmm. and still getting on a conference call oh, at wow. the same time. And 
there, but I, I was I, lucky enough in my situation in which I was able to pass the miscarriage on my own, but I certainly could have needed, and I actually had a DNC scheduled mm. um, for later in the week. And, you know, if that happened now, I, I would wonder, would I be able to get those services during wow. a pandemic? What sort of stigma is there around women's health that our health needs can often be seen as less than and not essential? I just want to ask you that. Why, why do you think pregnancy and all of its formations or continuums of, of losing a pregnancy, of trying to get a pregnancy, of deciding to end a pregnancy, why is it so stigmatized? Well, of course, the simplest answer is our long history of patriarchy, but it is more more complex than that. And I think this is one of those answers where the answer is both universal and specific Mm -hmm. to the individual. It is, it is different country by country. It is different state Mm. by state in terms of access. Um, You know, me living in the United States and you living in Canada, we are going to have two very different experiences around access to sexual and reproductive health services. Mm -hmm. And and me during the current uh, U.S. government administration versus me a couple of years ago, those are going to be two Mm -hmm. very different experiences as well. Um, So in, in terms of the stigma around women's health, frankly, there's there is a wild lack of education. Mm-hmm. Um, f- people simply don't know. As I said, they don't know how common miscarriages are. Often people don't know how common abortion is, how contraceptives fail. Uh, so it's certainly important that, you know, as we work to reduce stigma, whether it's around pregnancy or health or any other issue, a huge part of that work has to be around advocacy and education and and giving people information in an effort to reduce Mm -hmm. stigma. And that's, I think, such a a good point, because part of the reason that people do not have the right information about their own bodies or other people's bodies, including with regards to contraception pregnancy, is that we stigmatize sex. Sex Mm. is still such a taboo topic. It's hard you know, to get it covered universally, comprehensive sexuality education in high schools is not widespread, even in Canada. There's been mm-hmm. so much debates over what, what we can include in the curriculum for, for primary school and secondary school, not just in Canada. And, and I remember when I was, you know, in another context um, in Uganda, pregnant girls uh, were not allowed, to, they were kind of... Um, you know, to evicted from school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were kicked yeah. out of school, <laughs> expelled from school. Right. Um, so they, in the, in when I was speaking to some folks, they're like, oh, that's because, um, you know, we don't want to encourage people to get pregnant. And I know that <clears throat> maybe that's, maybe I'm not really sure of the rules if, if people can get expelled for being pregnant in high school in North America. But I definitely know that by not providing um, daycare you can make it pretty hard for somebody um, who's pregnant to continue their education. Absolutely. The, uh, there is an incredible lack of support for pregnant people, no matter their age. Uh, 
around the world. You know, Carmen, something, something you, you said there was, was the stigma around sex. Mm-hmm. And that got me thinking that it's such an important point because, and we have, of course, the data to support this. The majority of people who have sex have sex for fun, have sex for pleasure. They mm-hmm. do not have sex for reproduction. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and and sex. salt and pepper, you know, let's talk about yes, sex. Indeed. It also seems to be quite um, wise, you know, over the years. We Absolutely. still don't want to talk about sex. The message still holds <laughs> up. And, you know, when we when we think of sex only as something around reproduction, that actually puts people's lives in danger, all different mm-hmm. types of people. Right now I'm thinking about older women. Um, I, I have uh, a dear friend and colleague, Kaylin Crockett, and, and we have written a lot about uh, older women and, and, and sexual rights. And one of Yes, one of the I things, love that work. Oh, thank you. One of the things that we see is that older women who are abused and sexually abused, raped, oftentimes when they go to a provider or to a family member or, or, or to any sort of support system, an individual who should be a support system, the thought is maybe they fell. Maybe that's how this bruise happened because people don't realize that an older person might be a victim of sexual violence Mm. or thinking an older provider might not think to ask an older person about STI testing Mm -hmm. uh, if they, because we don't realize that people continue to have sex throughout their life course. And because of this stigma around older people's sexuality, that can impact the services that are available to them. That's such a great point. I think there you really see the intersection between like our our stigma on sex and the stigma towards people who are older. <laughs> so yeah. sort of the combination makes a, a whole group of people totally erased from services and from information and education. Um, it's so important to think about. Oh, wow, it feels so this, it does lead to my next question. This feels very overwhelming. How can we fix this? You know, we could get everyone to listen to Salt and Pepper, which, you know, I, I think is a really good idea. <laughs> um, but how can we, you know, erase or remove or start to like disentangle all these stigmatizing views around sex and then how that, you know, infiltrates people's thoughts about pregnancy and, and other you know, things that are associated with sex. I think here's the thing to remember. Everybody has a platform and our platforms might look different Mm. and who we can reach might look different depending on where we are in our life at that moment. But you do have a platform no matter where you are. And there are people you can reach no matter where you are. And taking it and yeah, taking it upon yourself to be loud, to protest, mm. to advocate, to educate is really important. And I can tell you, I have had totally different experiences on this space at different times in my life. I don't know if if you or, or other folks listening heard about this, but maybe it was about 10 years ago, eight or 10 years ago in New York City, there were subway ads and they, they were just terrible. 
They were, uh, <laughs> the attempt uh, from the New York uh, Department of Health was to reduce adolescent pregnancy. And these ads were trying to do that by inflicting shame on oh. teen parents. So it's crying babies saying, you know, you had me as a teen. Now I'm less likely to graduate high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. So instead of that, saying, that helps you, you know, break out of stereotypes. By <laughs> right. <forcing laughs> so instead them. of talking about, you know, poverty as a driver of teen pregnancy, it was saying teen pregnancy is a driver of poverty. It was really wow terrible. And I was, I was living in New York at the time and I would see these ads on the subway every day and they made me furious. And then one day I happened to have a Sharpie in my amazing. Backpack. Yep. And so I go right up to the sign and I, Right, you know, shame is not a public health tech, uh, tool. Oh, and, I like that. <laughs> and I just start <laughs> defacing these signs on the subway. And I, I had a, I had a dear friend, and she would rip the signs down every time she saw them. And that is the platform we had available to us at the time. Mm-hmm. I could reach a couple people riding the A train in Manhattan if I was on this platform. And then, you know, right now, today, you and I get to talk and we get to reach more people on this podcast. And, mm-hmm. and we write journal articles and we write op-eds and, and those reach a broader audience. But I'm, I'm still going to use my subway technique if, if, if that's, yeah, if that's where like, I am. I feel like there used to be more defacing of signs. I remember when I was growing up, there was a lot more, I don't know if it was like what they called like guerrilla graffiti or a lot more of people um, commenting on the messaging that was in advertisements on billboards. I remember seeing a lot more resistance to those messages. And now I don't know, Mm. I I guess I just haven't noticed so much critique of public messaging. So Mm -hmm. I'm really glad you're keeping that art form alive. And that activism alive. That's amazing. Yeah. I think it's, you know, everyone has their form of advocacy of protest, but what you mentioned is, is, is art. Uh, There is, in terms of battling stigma and, and improving environments for individuals around the world, the art community has just an incredible reach. And Mm -hmm. whether you're a writer, a musician, or an artist in any form, um, you know, you don't have to work in public health or, uh, sociology or, or any of these disciplines t- to have impact. You can have impact no matter what your career is. That's so awesome. You're amazing. You're um, amazing. So the, the next part of, unless you wanted to add more, I, I really feel like that's very empowering. And oh, also, also reminds us that we don't have to accept the messages that we're given and, and to always be critical of who is producing those messages. So I think that's a, that's great that, that sometimes the public health messages get it wrong yep. or maybe those weren't public health messages. They were, I don't know who, who paid for those. It's always good to look at who, who yes. paid for the, uh, the ads and who's behind those ads. And even if it was the public health, they could also, you know, fear and shame is, is never a good motivator. We always right. want people to be acting out of care for themselves and others, out of joy, out of, you know, if it's about sex, out of pleasure, you know, yep. not necessarily out of negative things. Yep, absolutely. 
Um, so the, the next section of this is the final section. It's some wild card questions for you so oh. listeners can get to know you better. Okay. First one is, what is your favorite Netflix or movie right now during COVID-19? I just watched season one of Fargo. Uh, and is it, I thought I it was a movie. It. It's, it's a movie, but it is also a show. It's, it's on, I actually don't know which channel it's on. I watched it on Hulu. It is, a, it is a series as well. And I just watched season one and I was completely engrossed. Uh, we watched it as a family and Amazing. loved it. Little anxiety provoking. So maybe not for everyone during this time, but <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. That's <laughs> awesome. Um, I'm now going on. The next one will be Fast and Furious 8. So we've made it. We're starting a series of movies from the beginning. So, I love that series. It's really, it's really one of my very favorites. It's really fun. And then we have to do Mission Impossible, uh, Beverly Hills Cop. So anything where there's like a movie with multiple movies, we can start from the beginning and yep. go forward. So we're taking suggestions. Um, uh, I, you should watch all four Jaws movies. Oh, I don't do horror, eh? So oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And it can't be scary. That's a funny or okay. action. So okay. I'm open, but but, but I, I, but Fast and the Furious is the best series. <laughs> oh, it is. I mean, now I'm like excited for number nine. Uh, yep. All right. So the second question is, if you could go anywhere in the world, not minding these travel restrictions right now and have dinner with anyone living or dead, where would you go and who would it be with? That is a great question. I am overwhelmed with all the possibilities of, of where I could go uh, in a world in which I wasn't restricted with travel. And <laughs> even though I am sitting here looking at the ocean, I would have to say I'd want to go to another place with an ocean. <laughs> um, you know what? I'll be, I'll be really honest. If I could go anywhere right now, I would go to the uh, the Seychelles, and Ooh. if I could have, I know I should have a better answer to for living or dead because I know the world's, you know, an endless. There's no good or bad answer here. This is just honestly me inspired by people. I I really <laughs> I really like my family right now. I'd still have dinner with them. Awesome! I yeah. the Seychelles is the on my bucket list. Oh, it's so great. It's so, they have bats that fly around in the daytime. It is okay, wild. You and I are a bit different. <laughs> that would make me not want to go. You're like, it's horror and bats in the daytime. I'm like, I don't know. There's I bats think of in it the daytime. Now I might take this off my bucket list. <laughs> I'm learning where I don't want to go now. Um, <laughs> what did you love about it the most? The bats in the daytime. Oh, I cannot believe that. Are they fruit bats? I've seen those fruit bats. Yeah, they're bats fruit bats. In, I mean, in. so, you know, they're just eating fruit, but they're gigantic. Oh, the ones, oh, so I saw fruit bats the only time was in Ghana, mm -hmm. and we would walk to this waterfall in this incredibly magical, beautiful place, and there would be fruit bats um, flying around there. I found them a little terrifying, but I was relieved that they were small. Oh, so, Yeah. No, the, the Seychelles <laughs> fruit bats are not small. All right, I'm now it's, um, it's that being downgraded on my bucket list. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but it's still there, but it's just a, like a couple notches down. Um, Fair enough. Okay. My last question before I let you go off to a beautiful evening by the ocean 
is what is a piece of advice that you've gotten that's been super helpful and you'd like to share with the listeners? Hmm, that's a great question. This isn't a piece of advice from my mother. Mm. She told me to be kind, be smart, and be scary. Hmm. Wow, I like that. I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna write that down. It's a very specific brand of feminism, but it works. So, is there a particular order? They're all like. Is it like a Venn diagram when you are you are at the middle of all those three things? I don't. I've always thought you have to go in the order of kind, smart, and scary. Ah. Um, but certainly open to interpretation. Okay. <laughs> Listeners, let us know if there's a particular order that has been more effective or not for particular things. (laughs) Please do. I'm sure my mother would be very excited to hear. (laughs) Thank you so much. I just want to say I'm really grateful that you took the time to come on this podcast. And for the listeners, there will be links to all of Bergen's work, including maybe we could put a link to your latest I think I just noticed you've been in Ms. Magazine a lot. Yeah. Yes. I, <laughs> I but Googled I did. you and I was like, wow, <laughs> I need to go back and catch up on all my reading that you, from, from yes, work. Yes, yes. But I did write about pregnancy, COVID, and miscarriage and Ms. Uh, recently. So that's super relevant. So we'll, we'll put a link to that latest article. So thank you so much, Bergen. And I can't wait to see you in real life at some point. And thank be in you, touch Carmen. virtually. I can't wait. <laughs> So thank you again so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Mm-hmm.